I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. My guest is Judy Battalion. Her new book that we'll be talking about is The Light of Days, the untold story of women resistance fighters in Hitler's ghettos, an amazing and harrowing story of Jewish girls and young women in Poland who became couriers and spies. They smuggled weapons, bombed Nazi trains, and saved thousands of Jews from the Nazi death camps. And when it seemed that there was no hope of survival, one of them planned a mass suicide attack against the Nazis, which then went on to inspire hundreds of young Jewish women to take up arms and fight back against the Nazis. So Judy Battalion, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, this was a wonderful read. I couldn't put the book down. Oh, thank you. And it was so well written, so well organized. I read a lot of books, and uh, I really appreciate when things are are put into a really coherent narrative. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. So you worked on this book for about 12 years. What inspired you to explore and write about this particular subject, and how did you first hear about these stories? Yeah, so this book um, happened completely by accident. Um, I was living, it, it actually started now, it's been 14 years ago, this, this month. I was living in London at the time, and I, w- I was thinking a lot about my Jewish identity, and I, I was thinking a lot about, uh, I am the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors, and I, I was reflecting on the emotional legacy of the Holocaust, how trauma passes through generations. And I I was writing actually a performance piece having to do with that. And I happened to be doing some research at the British Library when I came across a book that that struck me because it was an unusual object. It was um, an old book. It was... um, had a fabric cover, it was sort of beige and dusty with gold lettering, and it was in Yiddish. It was called Freuen in die Ghettos, Women in the Ghettos. Um, but p- perhaps even more unusual than the book was that I speak Yiddish. So I, I just, I was intrigued by this book, as, really as an artifact. But so I began flipping through it, and, and um, I was stunned by what I came across. These were stories of young Jewish women who fought against the Nazis, and and primarily in the Polish ghettos, with chapter titles like Weapons and Partisan Combat and and the Battle in Vilna, and dozens of names and, and even photographs of young Jewish women who were involved in this resistance effort. And it was so different in tone and in content from any uh, Holocaust narrative that I'd ever heard, that I'd ever, uh, that I'd grown up with at all, um, that I, I knew, I knew I found some treasure. I knew I had to do something with this, and, and and that's how it all began. Yeah, it is quite unusual to be speaking Yiddish these days. Yeah, I happened to be raised by my my grandmother, who was the Holocaust survivor. And she spoke to me in Yiddish, so it was actually my first language. Um, and I actually studied at a Jewish school in Montreal. It was a very unique um, school that from pre-kindergarten through the end of high school, I we studied Yiddish every day. It was a secular, traditional Jewish education that focused on language and literature. 
Wow, that's a whole nother story in itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been, I, I'd have to say it's been over 50 years since I've heard Yiddish spoken. My great-grandparents spoke Yiddish. Well, ich kann reden a bisschen Yiddish mit So, another fascinating aspect of the story is in Poland, before the war, many young Jews were forming into various youth groups. I would love for you to tell us about those youth groups, how they were structured, and the kind of things they were doing prior to the Nazi invasion. Yeah, this is such an important part of the story. In Poland in the 1930s, Jewish youth was really organized into these youth movements, these youth groups. Um, 100,000 young Jews were part of youth groups. And it, Jews weren't allowed to join the Polish scouts. So part of this was a reaction to that. They made their own groups. But there were all kinds of different types of groups, and they were affiliated with different value systems, even with different political parties. Um, so there were religious youth groups. There were socialist youth groups. There were communist youth groups. Uh, I write primarily about um, socialist secular youth groups. Um, some were Zionists, some were not Zionist, um, but that, that's sort of what, what I've been working on and studying. And these youth groups were, they were, as I said, they were like the scouts, but more so. These were intellectual, social, spiritual, emotional training grounds for the youth. And the groups that I write about believed in equality, collective living, um, collaboration, the pursuit of truth. They, they actually were very interested in psychology, psychoanalysis. They, they promoted a lot of self-awareness, a lot of emotional awareness. Um, and many times these um, kids, teenagers, people in their early 20s even left their family homes to move into communes with, these, with their groups. Um, they would joke that their, their, their last name was the group's name. They were, they were very dedicated to, to these movements. And these movements are what later became the structure of the resistance. These groups became the underground militias in the ghettos. Yes. It's fascinating how, how they transformed or, or evolved into, into those roles. So tell us about these girls and young women and their background before the war, and what propelled them into these roles during these extreme conditions and, and essentially putting them on the front lines, in a way. Sure. So the women that I write about were also trained in these youth groups, and as I said, they, they promoted e equality. Women... You know, there were forms of feminism alive back in Poland in the 1930s. Women were, were leaders in many of these youth groups. So they, they were used to having some, some leadership roles. Um, in the underground, women ended up taking on specific roles because it was easier for women to pretend to be Christian. It was easier for Jewish women to pass. And so they ended up doing underground work that took place outside of the ghetto, which is why they were putting their lives at risk at every moment. Jews were not allowed to be outside the ghettos. But they would pretend to be young Christian women and girls. And th the reasons they were better able to do this were, first of all, because they were not circumcised. So men had a physical marker of their Jewishness on their body, um, and, and that would be, if, if, if a man was suspected of being Jewish, he would be told at gunpoint to drop his pants. So women didn't have that, um, that threat. Um, but, but more than that, I, let's go back to their education. Women in the 1930s were educated in Poland, uh, boys and girls. Mandatory education was required up through about eighth grade. And, but often in Jewish families, they would send their sons to Jewish schools, and they sent their daughters to Polish public schools. And in these public schools, women became more acculturated. They became familiar with Christian mannerisms and habits and even prayers. Um, they, they were just more familiar with, they, they had more 
friends who were, who were not Jewish, and, and they were from, and importantly, they learned to speak Polish, and they talk about this all the time, like a Pole, um, not with the creaky Yiddish accent, as they say. So they they were better able to pass as as Christians, and they ended up taking on roles in the resistance, like courier girls who were you know able to. They, these were young Jewish women who went out and escaped from ghettos, slipped in and out of ghettos. They connected the communities. They brought information. They brought supplies. They brought false. IDs, they brought fake Aryan papers and cash, and then weapons to help arm the ghetto uprisings. The, the girls would go out and meet weapons dealers and buy guns and explosives and ammunition and bring it into the ghettos. So give us a sense of what was involved in a mission and the obstacles and risks that they had to navigate around. Well, first of all, so I'll, I'll tell you about my, my central character, Renya. Let, let, let's talk about her first mission, because I think that, that might illustrate this. So first, she has to make sure she looks good, they used to call it. Um, for her, she already had lighter-toned eyes and hair. Many women dyed their hair. They had to dress in a way that would be um, appropriate for a young, often middle or upper-middle-class Polish woman for a day out on the town. Um, so she had to get physically ready. She then had to sneak out of the ghetto. Um, and there were many ways that women did this, sometimes climbed over roofs, snuck through gates. Um, they often left with a, a – the only time Jews were allowed out of the ghetto was to do forced labor, slave labor. So sometimes they would sneak in and out with a slave labor group. Um, then once they were out on the Aryan side, they were alone. They were often confronted by blackmailers who would would notice that they weren't uh, actually Polish and would, would threaten them, if you don't pay me a certain amount of money, I'll take you to the Gestapo. So they would have to pay off these blackmailers. They often walked around with, with money sort of right, right in their pocket so they could just hand it to blackmailers. Um, and then they had to walk long distances and usually get on trains to travel between cities and, and keep up appearances. They had to not just speak their, their Polish and, and wear their, the, the right clothes, but also they needed to seem happy and confident. And even when they were you know, sitting in a, in a train car listening to other people talk about being happy that Jews were killed or that, you know, they had to play along. Um, so on Renya's first mission, she landed in the middle of Warsaw. Um, she'd never been there before. She had to. She was given an address of a contact from the Polish resistance. She describes it that there were checkpoints on every corner. They were checking IDs, checking your paper, checking your bags. Um, there were shooting in the streets, and you know she finally gets to the address, and 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 the woman's not there. And she just has nowhere to go. She doesn't know anyone, and this happened too. And, you know, one, one courier said, you know, you can't just ask directions to the ghetto. You, you have to look as if you belong, as if you have something to do in town, as if you're going to work or going back to work. So they had to pretend to be, you know, purposefully engaged. Um, and, and it goes on and on and on. Yes, and... In addition to that, they also, you, you mentioned that they had to look happy and act confident, and there were times when they were, they were questioned by Nazi officers or, or, or guards or people like that, and, and they must have been terrified inside, and yet they had to act confident and smile and, and not give away any sense of fear. Nothing. The slightest inkling of fear could give you away as being a Jew. It, it, was, they used to, it was a constant performance. It was a, a life-or-death performance. And remind us how old these, these girls and young women were, and particularly how old Renia was at this time. So Renia did missions for the underground when she was 18. Um, some of these women were as young as 16, most of them were around 
say 18, 19, maybe up to 22. And some of the women, the leaders in the movement were about 25, 26. So these were young people. You know, we've often heard stories of how the Jews went passively to the gas chambers with little or no resistance. Um, could you talk about the question of fight or flight that you bring up repeatedly in the book and the differing attitudes, mainly between the younger and older generations? Well, sure. I mean, I think flight or flight, fight or flight, sorry, is more of a, almost a mental exercise for us now or for me now when I think about these situations. Would I have faced the Nazis? Would I have fought in that way or would I have fled? But both, both fight or flight are forms of resistance. They are both very active choices, dangerous choices, um, and, and you know, both of them are, are different ways of, of handling this tremendous danger and, and, and horrific um, occupation of, of the Jewish people. Um, often what happened in many of these ghettos, and, and I'm speaking in, in generality, was that the Jewish community leaders were concerned um, about about adding fuel to the fire, they they were more conservative in their outlook in the sense that they they felt we shouldn't we should if we fight back the Nazis are just going to kill more of us they're going to strike harder they're going to um, you know kill our children these were adults who had families and were in a different position in their life whereas the groups that I write about were young many of them their parents had been killed they were now orphans. Everyone had been killed, and they, they felt this was ludicrous. The Nazis are going to kill us all, no matter what we do. We better fight back. We better do whatever we can to, to fight back for, for our own pride, for, our, for, for the generations that follow, and, and to try to help and rescue whoever we can. So there was often a tension around how to handle this brutal Nazi occupation. But ultimately, when I look back now on the story of the Holocaust, I, I, I see it as one of constant resilience and, and resistance and, and defiance. I mean, most people were killed because they were being occupied by a massive military force, but they, it doesn't mean they didn't struggle and resist all the time. And when they were discovered, often they were shot on the spot in the street, right in front of everybody else. Yeah, I mean, even most of the people in the resistance were killed. Mm -hmm. So this was very, very serious business. Something that I think is very difficult for any of us to even begin to comprehend. I mean, literally every step that these women took uh, outside the ghetto, or even inside when they were when they were making plans or, or, or making weapons or defying the Nazis, was at the risk of... T brutal torture and death. And also putting the people around them at risk as well. Yes, exactly. Exactly. The, the collective punishment element. So if you were caught, your, your family and friends would also be killed or tortured and killed. Mm -hmm. So I'm really curious to have you describe the communications and smuggling networks and how they were formed and, and organized. Well, again, these networks came from the youth movements. It, it was the youth movements inside these different ghettos that began, they, they were aware from very early on in the war that they needed to stay connected. The Jews in ghettos were not allowed to have radios. They were not allowed to have newspapers. They didn't know what was going on. Um, they, the, the youth movements, it was often these young women who slipped out of the ghettos pretending to be Christian who were actually bringing information, they were bringing the news. They were coming to communities and telling them literally what was happening in Poland, what the Nazis were doing. Um, and that sort of became the, the connection system between the ghettos. And then later on, they began transporting weapons and, and other contraband materials. They also were the first people to start relaying the information 
about the death camps and how Jews were being exterminated en masse. Yes, they talk about how at first when these when these girls would arrive in the ghettos they were they were bringing information and hope and people felt so happy that they had come because they felt someone remembered them and they were connected to the outside world but then these these women who had been symbols of of hope and of optimism suddenly start have had to bring the most terrible news of all the news of mass executions and the the beginnings of of the genocidal acts of the Nazis and and again yes they were the ones who were who were who were spreading the news and tell us about the conditions inside the ghettos so there were actually over 400 ghettos in Poland alone ghettos were often um, in what had been these sort of poorer parts of town the Nazis uh, told everyone else to leave and they moved the Jews in and usually they were extremely small areas relative to the population so you would have several families living in a room um, people there was very little food there was illness there was very little medication there was disease there was lice there were um, contagions and, and, and really difficult conditions physically and mentally. People felt that they had no space to be. They felt totally occupied. And also you write about how in the Warsaw Ghetto and perhaps in some of the other, other ghettos, there, were, there was an amazing array of cultural activities going on, even under these conditions of starvation and, and even freezing during the harsh winters in Poland. There, were, there was a Broadway in the Warsaw Ghetto with, perform, someone had written about this, 30 performance venues. There was an underground medical school. Um, many of the women write, I write about were very involved in taking care of children and, and orphans, children whose parents had been killed. And they set up underground schools and summer camps and theater and sports leagues. Um, there, was a, there was a lot of cultural activity, especially earlier in the war. You talk about how these young women were carrying large amounts of money with them because they had to pay lots of bribes, not only to keep themselves out of harm's way, but to hide and smuggle Jews to, to safety, to find them safe places to live, hideouts, bunkers. Um, could you talk about that aspect of what they were doing? Sure. I mean, you know, some of the women were very involved in rescue. And by this, I mean, they helped Jews find hiding spots. They helped take Jews out of ghettos and slave labor camps and hide somewhere. And especially in cities, these hiding spots were in apartments, in towns. They could be in a, in a barn or in the farmhouse or, you know, there were different spots. There were all kinds of uh, underground bunkers and fake walls and fake rooms and, and attics. And um, these Jewish women were, well, I mean, one of their roles was that they were, they, they were paying the hiders. Um, they were also making sure that the people they were hiding stayed healthy and, and not abused. Um, and they would, you know, come check up on them every few weeks, um, bringing money to, for their upkeep and for their food. Um, and bringing them medical care when needed, bringing even trusted photographers to take photos of them for, for fake IDs and fake travel papers. Um, so this, this was all part of the work that they were doing on the outside. There's another central character that you write a lot about named Zivia. Could you tell us about her? Zivia Lebeckin was... I, I, my favorite anecdote is about her being a child. She was so shy that when guests came over, her parents made her stand on a chair in the kitchen and, and give speeches just to practice, and, and she could never do it. Um, this shy girl became a leader in the Warsaw Ghetto and a leader of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And her work was both 
spiritual in the sense that she, she I mean, people relied on her advice and on her, her as, a, as a role model. She negotiated with government. She negotiated with Nazi figures and Polish government figures and, uh, I mean, official figures and, and, and the Jewish leaders as well, um, trying to, she helped get her, her young comrades out of um, slave labor camps. She helped get more food rations for the movement. Um, she was then very involved in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising in bringing together different youth movements to band together and, and, and be able to create a larger impact in the ghetto uprising. She trained to use weapons, and she fought in, in two ghetto uprisings as a guerrilla fighter. Um, and she escaped the ghetto in a sewer. She led people out in, in up to her neck in sewer water. Um, she also fought alongside the Polish resistance in the Warsaw Uprising of 1944. And then even after, she was in hiding, um, and she helped run these rescue operations. She, she looked too Jewish to go out, um, but she w- administered these rescue organizations, taking care of finances and connections and just organizing how, how they would run. And she was the one who organized and planned the desperate mass suicide attack against the Nazis when she reached a point where she had given up hope and and was convinced that there was no way that they were going to survive. Could you tell us about that mass suicide attack and what happened? Well, they didn't do it. <laughs> um, you know, things had gotten so bad in the ghetto. So many people had been killed. The, even the people in the underground had been killed. Their, their weapons stash had been found and taken. They, they just hit so many, so many walls. There, there was difficulty collaborating with the Polish resistance. And, and they reached a point, many in this movement, where they felt that they just couldn't, they couldn't take it anymore. And the best thing to do was to all kill themselves. Um, they didn't want to die at the hands of the Nazis, so they would you know, this would be almost a sacrificial in, with some honor, with some pride. Um, but then Zivia's boyfriend at the time uh, kind of turned it around and said, no, we're at our lowest point, but, you know, we can't, we can't let them let us kill ourselves. We have to keep going. And though so they were reluctant to hear that at first, ultimately he, he convinced them and, and turned them around, and, and they went on fighting, and, and that's when they sort of really, really geared up for the uprising. And as I remember it, that first battle that they went into, they were utterly convinced that they were all going to die. And when they all survived, they didn't know what to do. They were, they were in a kind of a state of, of shock that they were still alive. To them, these were suicide missions. They, how, how would they possibly live? They were... They were starving Jewish teenagers with homemade weapons, um, with a few stolen fault guns that didn't even work properly. And they didn't even plan bunkers for themselves. They didn't plan a, a food supply. They assumed they would be killed. And then they, they weren't killed. They were shocked. <laughs> they were shocked that they had done it, that they had pushed the Nazis back, that they had tricked them, that they had shot them, that they, in fact, were still alive. And all of this with no military training whatsoever. I mean, the odd person in the underground had been had had some Polish military training, but I mean, it was very rare. And those were usually the people that then taught the others how to shoot a gun. Hmm. So, after the Nazis deported most of the Jews to the gas chambers and destroyed the ghettos in Poland, um, these women couriers, their main job became about hiding Jews and and saving children. And it was harder and harder for them to hide. And also describe some of the, the more harrowing bunkers that some of them were having to hide in. I mean, they were almost impossible to get in and out of. They were so, so well camouflaged and so secret. 
I mean, there were some people who were hiding in, in a cupboards. There were people who were hiding, and they, they built a, a false wall in a bathroom, and they, they stayed in there for months at a time. Um, people developed physical problems from the hiding. They were, you know, literally crouched over. Um, some of the, the work that these women did was to try to find better hiding places, ones where, that were more, a little more livable, um, and also to bring medical care when, it, when even just the act of hiding was so demanding and difficult on the body. And as you said, many of these resistance fighters were captured or killed. Um, many of them, when they were captured, they were sent to these notorious Nazi torture prisons. Could you tell us about some of that? Yeah, so a lot of times when these women were captured, they, the Nazis didn't know they were Jewish. Remember, they were, they were pretending to be Catholic girls, but they'd be caught. They'd be caught maybe with a weapon on them, or, or there were other, or with a fake paper that didn't seem quite right, and they, they knew these were fakes. But, so then they, they wouldn't be treated as Jews. They were caught, and, and, and it was suspected that they were part of the Polish resistance, that they were spies. Um, for the Polish resistance, and they would take them to political prisons where they were brutally tortured, uh, really brutally tortured physically uh, and mentally. And you describe how harrowing these tortures were, and and they were repeated, and you, you also talk about how inside these prisons, the women still organized cultural activities and they even sang about their grief when their their comrades were shot and also that that in between their beatings some of them were writing memoirs about what was happening one of the most amazing uh, sources for me was a diary a memoir written in a Gestapo prison in Krakow by a woman, um, Gusta Davidson, who was a leader in the Krakow underground, and she was imprisoned. She was imprisoned as a Jew, but as a Jewish resistance fighter, and she was brutally tortured. Um, and despite that, she she really led the women in her cell in prison, and she had them. Um, you know, she had them clean themselves every day, and yes, they wrote, they did some poetry and singing, and, um, and she wrote a diary. She wrote a very, she was a beautiful writer, and before the war, she had been a writer and edited the, the movement papers and, and, and magazines. She, she wrote a beautiful and, and very insightful diary, and she did it on toilet paper, and she would have the women sort of sit around her and distract others so, so no one could see what she was doing. But sometimes her fingers hurt so much from the torture that she wasn't even able to write. And someone else had to, she dictated, and someone else would write for her. And she wrote this with pencils that had been smuggled into the cell uh, on bits of triangular toilet paper. And they made five copies I believe it was five of this diary, and they hid them in various places, and, and one of them was found. And not, not all of it, but a lot of it was found and sort of put together. Um, and it's an incredible document, both, both in its content and in the, in the conditions of its, of its creation. And it's amazing to think how far-seeing they were about all of this, to write these memoirs, these, these stories of what was happening with the hope and belief in the importance of, of the legacy of, of what was happening. Yes, there were many cases of, of this kind of memoir writing f for the future. I mean, even in the Warsaw Ghetto, there was a, a large, they, they created an archive. Um, they saved all kinds of documents and, and put them in, in milk jugs and buried them. Um, Bialystok Ghetto too had a, had an archive, and and a number of these women were chronicled their experiences in hiding in the war. Yes, and books and 
newspapers and journals and all of those things were were totally illegal under penalty of death and yet they were held as sacred things to keep and maintain yes exactly i mean everything was at, almost any activity was at penalty of death and we're lucky that we have some of these documents now some of them have survived and they were great sources for me so renia she was captured and interrogated and went through horrific torture and tell us about how she escaped and eventually made it to Palestine. Well, you have to you have to leave something so that the reader will will find out how she how she gets out of it, but okay. I will say that she finds her way out of a Gestapo political prison. So that is the that is the degree of daring and cunning that we can find in her and in these women. Yes. Well, there there are a lot of other women who you follow through this book. It's yeah. not just Renia, although she is definitely at least one of the central figures in the book. Yes, yes. Renia's sort of the central figure, and then there's a number of other figures who I follow as well. And, and the end of the book, the whole last part, takes place after the war. And I, I was very interested for the women who did survive how they kept on surviving, how they went on. So, you know, once some of these resistance fighters did make it to Palestine, how were they received? And how were their stories received? There was some controversy about some of their stories. Could you tell us about that? Um, so many of them did tell their stories, quite a bit in, in the early years after the war. Um, some of them felt that they they weren't understood by the population or by the Jewish communities in Israel. Some of them felt that people didn't care about their stories. And some of them felt that their stories were were edited to tow political lines. Um, and all of this is part of why these stories got repressed for a long time. Could you tell us about those political um, issues involved in, in the repression of that. You also talk about that there was a, a kind of stereotyping and political separation between the European Jews and the Israeli Jews that was involved in that suppression. Well, this is based on conversations I've had with scholars who work more explicitly in that area. Uh, this wasn't the primary... Um, this wasn't my primary research here, but there is kind of this idea that that numerous people discussed with me that in order to create the new state of Israel, this was a, a new country in the 40s, certainly after 48, there was a, a sort of myth was created, um, as they tell me now, that um, sort of pushed the idea that European Jews were, were weak Jews, or the European Jewry was the old Jewry, and now this new country was going to be a new version of Judaism, a new sort of stronger, uh, the new stronger Jew. And that, that we you know, was sort of part of the necessary politics in building a new country. And because of that, the, many of these stories of resistance or resilience of European Jewry got forgotten or got uh, got dropped out of the narrative. So the resistance fighters who survived the war, what did they do after the war? Because they were they were still very young. They were very young. They were mostly in their early to mid 20s. They had no family, they had no home, they had no nationality. They didn't, they, their countries didn't even exist for many of them. There are all these new countries, and most of them uh, moved to new countries. Uh, in fact, all of them eventually did. And they also, many of them had sort of missed that time in life when you train for a career. Um, so they were really, they were people that had to start fresh. They had to start whole new lives. And some of them 
did that by really moving away from their past and, again, repressing these stories, not talking about it, trying to create new families to have children, to raise them in happy, healthy environments. Um, others, though, were, were more involved in survivor communities and, and in that, that aspect of their lives. Some of them joked that they were professional survivors because they were they stayed so so close to so many of these survivors for for the rest of their lives. That was their family. What was the quality of their lives like? Did they suffer like PTSD? Did they ever recover from what they went through? Well, because I speak about numerous different people, I mean, everyone's different, and everyone handled their trauma and was able to handle their trauma in in different ways. Some people never recovered and had tragic ends um, with, you know, mental collapses and even suicide. Um, And others seem to have, from what I can tell and from what I can understand, have managed to move on and, and really start new lives fresh and lives that seem to be filled with happiness and love and, and friendship so it, it, it depended. Could you tell us what it was like researching this book? And you also interviewed some of the children of these resistance fighters. Some of them were in Israel and some of them were in other parts of the world. What was that experience like? And what were they like? Well, again, I, I spoke to about 20 different families, so they're all very different. Um, they, you know, it was very exciting for me, but I was also very scared. I was very nervous about it. These, you know, these figures, these women had lived in my head alone for so many years. And then to go meet their families, meet their children, see the places where they had lived their lives was jolting for me. Um, and, of course, I was worried that their families would be upset with me for writing about them or, I don't know, they would, they would want something from me or... I, I, I don't know. I didn't know what it would be like. Um, and But overall, I, I, I found most families were so grateful that I was telling this story, that I was trying to tell this to a wider audience. And I, I think they, I think in general, they, they seem to be very, very um, supportive and, and grateful to be included. And could you talk about your source material for this book and and the challenges of putting it all together into a coherent narrative? I used primarily uh, memoirs and testimonies um, and photographs, um, but I, I really, obviously I read whatever historical writings were around these issues, these people, and this period, but my main primary source material was personal stories, and so, of course, there were complications. Personal stories are not cold data. Um, you know, there are inconsistencies. There are things that just don't make sense. There are, you know, even, even the same person will give different accounts of the same experience. If they've left different memoirs at different times in their lives, memory twists and turns. Um, so often I, I have to, you know, I try to read many, many memoirs and testimonies in order to build a full picture of what happened and to try to find the most plausible and historically accurate uh, narrative that I, that I could. And what was it like reading through all of this harrowing material and then condensing it, putting it together into a coherent narrative, considering how long it took you to complete this project from beginning to end? It was incredibly difficult. Um, that's part of why it took so long. Um, it took me a long time to really be able to sit with this material. And I, I worked on it for a long time, sort of in, in, in little bits here and there, because it, it, was too, it was too horrific. It was too overwhelming to really um, ensconce myself in these stories all day. Um, that, that's part of why it, it did take so long. Hmm. So we've got this interesting situation in Israel where considering what Jews went through in Poland and in Europe, a kind of apartheid that that Jews went through and is a, a part of our history, to see it being repeated in Israel 
in reverse. I mean, this is very far off from what my book is about. Um, As I say at the end of my book, it's very important for us to be self-critical, to think about ourselves always and our histories, the ways that we are victims, the ways we are aggressors, to tell the truth, to really, as these fighters said, we have to acknowledge the truth. We have to acknowledge the truth of, of who we are and of what's happening to us and of what we are doing. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating story, and to me it was actually very inspiring. I cried a lot through the book to see the kind of devotion that these young women had for each other and and the people around them who were suffering was just amazing to see that in the world. Many of these women went on to really have, have careers as carers, as uh, nurses, and caring for the blind, and humanitarians, and working with young children, and in refugee aid, and as social workers. There, there's a great sense of compassion that comes from them. I, I really have been inspired by their empathy, by their compassion, by even after what they've been through, their, their desire for justice. They always fought for justice, and they continued to even well after the war. My guest has been Judy Battalion, and the book that we've been talking about is The Light of Days, the untold story of women resistance fighters in Hitler's ghettos. Judy, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. captain in the army and right now I'm a stand-up comedian and a singer-songwriter. I live in Los Angeles and I'm pursuing my dreams. When I was signing the paper for the army and I knew I was going to deploy inevitably, it was definitely going to happen. And I remember I was about to sign and my hands started shaking and I couldn't get the pen down on the paper and I remember thinking to myself like 
oh my gosh, I'm signing my life away. You know, is this worth it? I mean, I could die. You know, is all of this worth it? And I even joked to the woman helping with my contract. I said, it feels like I'm signing my life away. And she said, you are. <laughs> so um, that, that realization, it absolutely became real. And all of a sudden, when she said that, and even though I was joking and she was being very serious, <laughs> it felt right. And it was very easy for me to sign my, my name on that contract. Because I, I just knew it was right. I knew my reasons for joining were really selfless. They really were. It wasn't for me. It was for the guys and girls, the men and women in arms, and being able to help in some way. And I thought truly, I really truly deeply thought that I could make a difference. I really truly deeply thought there's a reason for me doing this, and I'm going to bring home these men and women safely. Unless you've been there, unless you've experienced it, then you have no idea. You have, you have no idea what we went through. You have no idea how hard it is for any soldier. You have no idea how difficult it is to see, you know, the our guys, we call it a ramp ceremony when one of our soldiers is killed and we put him on a helicopter and, and a coffin and salute him. And you carry that with you. One of the things I believe so wholeheartedly is that everything in life happens for a reason. And through my experience and through that trauma of being raped, I actually was able to help a couple of my female soldiers while I was in the army because I recognized the signs of their depression and that deep pain that nobody else could really describe. I mean, unless you've been through it, it's really hard to recognize. But I was able to recognize this in a couple of my soldiers and prevent them from committing suicide. And two of my soldiers actually brought me their suicide notes and said, Mama, I was, I was planning on killing myself tonight and then you stopped me because you know, I just asked them how they were and just I ended up saying hey I don't know what you've been through and I don't want to assume anything but I've been raped and through that they were able to open up and tell me their experiences themselves and so I look at it through strength now as opposed to this huge travesty bogging me down how many of you have ever held a secret for yourself or for someone else by a show of hands and how many of you wish you could tell that secret with no judgment and no paying for it by a show of hands? Yeah, if you raise your hand and your partner is here, you're on your own, because now you have to tell them, right? So I want to take you back three generations where my great-grandmother, as soon as she was of age, she had puberty, she was married off. And her daughter, as soon as she hit 13, she was married off. And I just listened to one of the most inspirational women to me, Terry Rai, who used this analogy of being in a relay, where we are all passing on this baton. And these women in my life were all passing on this baton of early marriage, of illiteracy, of poverty. That wasn't their choice, but it was the race they were given. Then here comes my mother. She's given the same baton. And at 14, before she hit that age, she knew her fate. So she decided to run off before this time came. Her and her cousin took off to a big city and tried to start a new race for herself. But her, her dad and her stepmother needed her because she was their ticket to get another cow or another goat. So they come up with a plan to get her back in the village so she can deliver because that is what girls and women were for. Not educated, of course. They make up this plan, and she travels because she has to be respectful. And on her way there, they literally would throw a lasso around a girl. And once that's around you, you're already married off. Tag your it. And the rules were, you're supposed to now go stay in this house. The transaction takes place. And then you get to meet your husband, who's much older, you've never met. And when they took my mom to this house, she decided to change her race. 
and to not take that baton of early marriage. So she got up and sat outside in the courtyard and started singing on top of her lungs. And they thought she had lost it. And because of her stubbornness, she was not marriage material anymore. They were not going to marry off this stubborn woman. And so they sent her back home because she was not good enough for this. And that's when she changed her race. She had five kids and hands us a baton of an education. She changes our future because she knew this had to end with her. But one thing that was keep, kept going on is the silence around it. So here I am as a middle child of five. I get sexually abused at the age of 11. And the baton of silence was still with me. So I don't tell anyone. Same way my mom never told us about her history. She tragically died in 2010 in a car accident. And I find out all about this just this last summer when I started talking about my own stuff. 2015, I traveled to Uganda as a therapist. I didn't do my own work because I can just heal everybody else. And as, as a result, I'm good. I got the resources. I can do this on my own. I don't need anybody else. And as we're talking about mental health and trauma, what are some of the things I can do in this village? They tell me about this nine-year-old in class who had been assaulted the day before. And she was in class the next day, like nothing happened. And it turns out, in this village, the perpetrator just gives a goat to a parent as an apology. And to me, that was a message of telling these girls, you are worth a goat. And that was not okay. So we did our work with this girl, and literally a week later, another five-year-old who heard about what I had done, her grandmother came and said her daughter had been raped by her grandfather, who was HIV positive. And because they couldn't come up with $5 in the 72-hour span, she couldn't get that pill that could change her life. And it was like looking in a mirror of helping these girls and hearing the 11-year-old in me screaming, what about me? Either you think they deserve more than you do, or you're being a hypocrite, because the work is hard. And the voice was clear. I thought I was just too busy. Once I finish my doctorate, I have four kids, I have this and that, I can come back and do this work. But the voice was clear. Why do you get the luxury to wait when they're hurting now? So that's how I started my foundation. And I realized we all carry batons that we didn't ask for, but we have not stopped to wonder, what are we carrying? Generations before maybe have passed on batons of hate for those who don't look like you. Political affiliation that you never questioned. How does this affect my community? There's a lot of silence around important issues that we take for granted. Did we ever consider why they tell us not to talk about our salaries at work? Because that keeps women underpaid and men paid. You could be the first man to say, this is what I'm getting paid, what are you getting paid? Let's do something about that. They've told us to be quiet about religion and politics. Why is that? That's what got us where we are now. We don't know how to have these difficult dialogues. Now it's time to look at the batons we've been passing on. A story is told of a little girl watching her mother making turkey and baking it, whatever they do with turkeys, you can tell I don't cook. <laughs> and so she would cut off the legs and the wings before baking it. And the little girl said, why do you do that? And mom looks up and says, I actually don't know. My mom always did it that way. Let's ask mom, why did you do that, grandma? I don't know, my mom did it that way. Three generations later, great grandma did not have a big enough pot And so all these other generations were throwing away really good meat. Because of traditions, we didn't stop to question why do we do what we do. It served a purpose then, it does it now. How often do we stop and question the things we th think and believe, especially when they oppress other people? It is up to us to create a next generation that will have to Google what racism is, that will not understand what sexism you're talking about was. 
LGBT community, they will not know what a closet is because everybody is welcome, open, and we can have the difficult dialogue with respect and love for the other. What is the baton you're holding and about to pass on without looking, analyzing, so we can realize a better future? And so this analogy that I love the most is from a Japanese culture of pottery, where when it breaks, they fix it with gold. All the cracks are fixed with gold. And to me, it's an analogy of the wound is where the light comes in, and all the cracks in our lives have been a part of our history. We hold the power to patch them up with gold for one another and for ourselves. How are you going to open space for the next person so that we do not have to pass a baton of suffering, of trauma? As she said, trauma not transformed is trauma transferred. It might not have started with us, but it can end with us. And we have to start with ourselves. What are you going to do and pass on for the next generation? Because for me, I want my daughters to not have to do this work. Even as I speak up here and talk about my own stuff, I can feel my ancestry, my whole country just gasping. How would you say that in public? Now everybody knows your stuff. But I know my girl, Brene Brown, would be proud. <laughs> so it is up to all of us to create a future of healing, to be the gold that patches the society and the next generation. Thank you. That was Tabitha Palmieri Taguri. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.